This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MDT Podcast. I am... Joe Preston and I'm a consultant geriatrician down in Tooting and with me in the studio today I have a couple of people that can help me do this episode. To my left. Hello I'm Dr John Brooks I'm a GP in Battersea and also a sport and exercise medicine doctor. Hi I'm Arnie Puntis physiotherapist working at St George's as well. And we are going to be talking today about safe exercise and physical activity. As well as John and Arnie in the studio we've had Alice O'Connor who's our new uh, clinical fellow help us write this episode and Ian Wilkinson as well who is unfortunately working today. So by the end of this episode we're hoping that you're going to have a better appreciation of the health benefits of exercise and some of the evidence base for some of this. To be able to identify some specific situations in which physical activity or exercise might need to be limited and to be able to think about weighing the balance between the benefits and the risks of exercise. But first social media. Has anyone seen anything on social media? Mm, I don't know if it's... I mean, it, it might be perceived as being a bit controversial. Good. I'm going to go for it. Um, so I saw something on Twitter about um, agenda, for, agenda for Change and basically they had a, a graph that showed as the bandings go up, the kind of split between BME staff and non-BME staff and it kind of showed that actually the higher percentage of BME staff was at the lower end of the um, bandings and as it went up into sort of um, past sort of like the 8As, 8Bs and then into more managerial positions there were a lot less of BME staff being represented Um, and I suppose for myself as someone that's mixed race and non-white I found that really interesting to kind of look at that discrepancy between it and I find it quite um, yeah I found it quite challenging I suppose to Mm. kind of see it. I saw that, I think, through you, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a really powerful graph because yeah. the 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 numbers are really high. So it was a histogram, wasn't yeah. it? And, but the numbers crossing over were astonishingly high yeah. in both directions. Yeah, really high. Yeah. Yeah, and is anything being done to address that? Uh, well, I suppose it's a problem that's been going on for years. Like, it's not a new thing they've just suddenly discovered. Um, and also it's across the board, like it's not just within the NHS, it's across like higher education, it's across um, mm. the police force, it's across like, it's like institutionalised racism across the country, I suppose, rather than it just being the NHS. But the NHS are trying to address it, are trying to do stuff. I know our trust is um, trying to work on diversity and inclusion. Um, but it's a massive topic. It is, it is. And I know that the BMA have done quite a bit of work and, and continue to do quite a lot of work mm. around this. I don't know whether the physio societies and things yeah, do as well. They so, do, but and, and, and physio actually is a really interesting profession in terms of their diversity is really poor and it's getting better and a lot of the universities are trying to... Um, do more work to encourage more people from BME backgrounds to apply for physiotherapy and other um, AHP professions because traditionally they haven't done. Um, but actually you want your workforce to represent mm. your local community. Yeah. So you need people um, to apply for those things. Yeah. yeah. Great, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So um, why are we doing this episode? It's a good place to start, I think. Um, so Arnie and me were doing a clinic together. Yeah. Probably about a year ago now. Yeah, I think we started it a year ago. And we started to pull out some themes of things that we thought were quite interesting. And then John got involved in helping us to 
um, solve some of that. And one of mm. those things was around when is it safe for someone to exercise and not. And specifically, we're talking about community settings here. We're not talking about exercise in general. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when I started working with um, Joe, we were doing this joint clinic, like she said, and a lot of the patients were coming from the Falls team, which is the team that I was working in at the time. And we had quite strict criteria about which patients were allowed to exercise and which patients weren't in terms of their blood pressure and their heart rate and postural hypertension. And we'd often then refer the patients back to their GP to get medical clearance before they came to our classes, and that was causing a big delay. One of the things we were talking about is, do we need to be doing that? And actually, could we just go to the geriatrician um, in-house, so to speak, to get clearance and to get that reviewed? Or what was the reason that we were hesitant for allowing these people to do exercise? And also some of the medical conditions that were kind of alongside yeah. and, and um, concerns around uh, whether they were collapsing and things mm-hmm. like that, which are, are valid concerns. Yeah. Um, but we were able to unpick that a little bit more. And then John came in and did some education and then kind of the seeds of this were born. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And everything's evolved. And it was really interesting and really enjoyable coming in to do the teaching and try and put some meat to the bones of the framework, the blood pressure framework that you had, the hypertension framework. Um and I think it was interesting seeing the, the staff there and and almost providing some reassurance as much mm. as anything else that people with high blood pressure and some of these other medical conditions were generally pretty safe to exercise. Mm. And I think that's hopefully a bit of the theme of the podcast. So that's basically the episode. Right, you can stop listening um, now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but we had quite a lot of interesting discussions about who is it should, that should make that call, who is qualified to say that someone is safe to exercise, um, you know, should it be the physio who knows the kind of exercise mm-hmm. that they're going to be doing or should it be more generic statements around blood pressure values and things like that? So. Yeah, and as physios we had um, incidents of patients becoming unwell during the exercise classes and then feeling quite responsible for that and thinking, is that avoidable? And are we putting patients at more risk by doing exercises with them? Um, and as part of our team, we don't have a doctor on site and we work in the community and we're working in you know community settings like sheltered accommodation and gyms and local leisure centers we're not always going to be in a hospital doing the exercises so it's not like we can just pull a crash bell and people Mm. come running to our rescue we've got to kind of take that responsibility on ourselves and that's something i certainly saw when i was on twitter and um kind of put some stuff out for this episode saying oh you know give us some what do you think about this Mm. give us some examples and things and and i had an itu consultant who was like yes of course i get my ventilated patients up like straight away and yeah once they're alert obviously um and i was like yes but that's kind of missing the point this is these are very remote scenarios um where you don't have a crash team mm-hmm. you you could be anywhere yeah. you don't know what kind of equipment you might have not have any health professionals around you even exactly. so yeah um and i think then as a consequence actually it means you're probably a bit more conservative mm-hmm. in terms of the patients that you do yeah. encourage to exercise and i think Probably to a degree, G- GPs were, were, were a little bit more conservative because we're not going to be there when the patient's exercising. Yeah. And we perhaps don't, all of us, know the evidence around exercise mm-hmm. and how safe it is to exercise. And, and actually, there is a lot more evidence coming out about the safety aspects of exercise with different conditions. But it's certainly 
certainly not comprehensive or not as comprehensive as we want it to be, mm. certainly with some of the more complex medical conditions. So, so a lot of it still does come down to clinical judgment. So this episode is going to be about trying to provide some of that information so that you can feel more comfortable with deciding who might need medical clearance, as well as a better understanding of the risk benefit um, balance that you might be taking in this. And there are lots and lots of benefits. So to be too risk averse does not necessarily mean that you're being safe for that person. It's just being safe in a different uh, timescale or a different frame of what you're looking at. So let's get into it. So we usually start with a definition. John, do you want to... Shouldn't we start with some exercise? (laughs) (laughs) Right, everybody (laughs) else. No, no, no. no. I'm not sure anybody wants to listen to us do exercise on the podcast. Let's, let's, yes, right, let's start with definitions. So obviously the, the... title of the podcast is safe exercise but in brackets is and physical activity because actually what we're talking about is physical activity is is getting people moving and exercise is a form of activity um so we're we're not just talking about exercise and sport because actually that can have negative connotations for a lot of people who've had poor and and bad experiences particularly at school in the sort of 40s 50s 60s and as soon as you mention exercise or sport they're just not interested at all and as i say all we're interested in doing is getting people moving so as a as a formal definition exercise is physical activity that's planned structured repetitive purposeful so it's something that's aimed at improving or maintaining one element of, of physical fitness and, and that could be anything from walking to swimming to cycling to playing football to strength exercise um, and also the, the cardiac and pulmonary rehabilitation classes that, that we do in the force prevention classes. Whereas physical activity, which encompasses um, exercises, is really any bodily movement produced by skeletal muscles that requires energy expenditure. And that that's a much broader range of activities. So, you know, that can be anything from climbing stairs to carrying children to household chores, occupational tasks, you know, leisure time, physical activity, but also exercise as well. Um, so the definition of physical fitness is a set of attributes that people have or achieve that relates to the ability to perform physical activity. Types of physical fitness could be cardiorespiratory endurance, muscular strength, balance and coordination, flexibility, influenced by genetics, health conditions, physical activity and exercise can cause adaptations that have multiple health benefits. I think it's really important that we see physical activity basically as a modifiable risk factor. That really emphasises the importance of of physical activity and exercise, doesn't it? So the benefits in terms of reducing comorbidities um, expand to lots of different um, conditions, including dementia. It reduces your all-cause mortality, um, so you get an increased lifespan, helps to reduce the risk of dying early and... It's estimated that 37,000 premature deaths could be prevented annually in the UK through improving um, exercise. You have improved health, so reduced risk of multiple non-communicable diseases, so you end up living a healthier, longer life. Specific conditions that are improved are type 2 diabetes by 35 to 50%, cardiovascular disease by 20 to 35%, hypertension and even cancers, so colon, breast and endometrial are estimated to be reduced by 20 to 50%, which is huge. If you had any medication that could do that. No, you're right, it's massive. And I know it's a bit corny to say, but the chief medical officer a few years ago called it a wonder drug because actually if you had a drug that could do all that um, and was 
cheap, i.e. it can be free. Uh, it's got indiscriminate benefits. So mm-hmm. even if you exercise or do activity because you want to reduce your risk of having a heart attack, actually it reduces your risk of all these other wonderful things that you've just mentioned, Joe. Um, and it's independent of other risk factors. So you don't need to do all the, you don't need to modify other things to, to get the benefits. And by and large, it has minimal side effects. You know, you'd want all of your patients to have that, wouldn't you, if you if you could? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And there's a massive pressure in the CSP to increase people's physical activity. Um, and there are lots of campaigns going on that we'll put a link into. Um, but also something I read on Twitter that said, as an allied health professional um, and a doctor and a nurse, you see independently about half a million patients throughout your career. So actually the number of contacts that we're having with people, we have a massive potential to improve their physical fitness and and promote physical exercise, which is what we all kind of know we should be doing. But sometimes that is that hesitation of like, but what if what if I do something wrong? What if I push them too far? Which is obviously why we're then talking about it now. Yeah, And I, and I think when I came and, and spoke with the team about the, the hypertension stuff, I think it, they really appreciated being aware of how important it was, physical activity was, and and how important the job they were doing was in terms of trying to get people more active and actually yeah. how effective it could be. You know, the number needed to treat for just brief physical activity advice is 12, which is is actually pretty good compared mm. with a lot of drugs, medi- a lot yeah, of medications yeah. but even compared with things like just uh, brief smoking cessation advice which the number needed to treat is somewhere between 50 and 120 so wow. you know and that's just brief advice that's not just when you have a lot of contact with the patients that the physios are having in the in the day hospital where actually mm. they're, they're probably going to have more of an impact yeah so those are some of the broader benefits um, but there's lots of benefits that are kind of more specific to older adults so we know that um for people that are fall if they do exercise we can reduce their risk of falls and reduce the rate of falls um so home exercises or group-based programs the rate of falls reduces by 40 percent um and the rate of injurious falls is 41 percent lower so there's a FAME programme that um, most kind of falls prevention prevention services will use, either the FAME or the Otago, um, encouraging patients to do exercises weekly in a group setting, but also continuing to do exercises at home. And we know that has a, a, a huge benefit on their balance and their strength, but also increases um, their cardiac output if we start to use weights within those classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the falls prevention classes, they're not standardised across the country and they're not always necessarily run by physiotherapists. So they could be run by public health or by physios or by exercise instructors um, or by people that have got like personal training type qualifications. So the criteria for getting into those classes and inclusion, exclusion in terms of risk factors for blood pressure or timed up and go is all completely variable. So mm-hmm. there's no set standard for it across the board which then means it's hard to then set something for all falls classes because everyone runs it slightly differently. So, for example, when we're writing to the GPs and asking them, do you give medical clearance for this patient, they might not know what the class actually involves. And often we've had GPs turn around and say, well, we're not going to give you medical clearance because we don't know what it involves. You're the therapist. You know what it involves. You do the risk assessment. You're providing the intervention. You're providing intervention. You do the risk assessment. And for us as non-doctors that don't know all the kind of risk factors, cardiovascular risk factors and other things, we then feel out of our depth to be able to make that clinical decision. Mm. So with the falls classes, some of them can be quite low-level classes, which are basically seated chair-based exercises, whereas others could be quite high-level Um, doing the warm-up and standing, using weights, 
and actually challenging people's cardiovascular system quite hard. So depending on what level class you're doing will depend on the criteria for um, their medical background. Yeah, and what that person's going to go through from a cardiovascular perspective to yeah. indicate what kind of risks that they might be exactly exposed to. So I think it's time to get a little bit nerdier. Okay. We're not quite nerd alert. Okay. But mm-hmm. why is this more worrying to to provide this kind of exercise in older adults compared to, say, a fifty year old? Okay. So I guess I guess the key thing is there's there's less reserve in in older adults, particularly those that have got heart and lung problems and haven't really been physically active through most of their life. And as we go through life there are age-related changes to, to the normal physiology as we age. So you get, do get a reduction in VO2 max, strength, uh, flexibility, proprioception, muscle mass, mobility. And, and all of these things are associated with sedentary behaviour, but they're all preventable and reversible with physical activity and exercise. And I guess if, they're, if, if we're talking about older adults specifically that haven't been active, if, if they've had such a significant drop in their, their normal physiology and the, and the reductions in all of these things that we've just mentioned, then they're at higher risk of, of something more serious happening and they, they're more at risk of some of the non-communicable diseases that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. So obviously there are minimal phys- minimum physical activity guidelines um, that the chief medical officer has suggested that everybody aims for. But actually what we're essentially trying to do is get people moving more just to get them a little bit more active and particularly moving those very sedentary people to being less sedentary um, because there are big health benefits from just sitting less and just mm-hmm. doing a little bit more. And those are the individuals in particular that we really want to target and get, get moving a bit more. Um, and the, the show notes will, will give you the, the minimum physical activity guidelines. And I'm sure a lot of people, most people need a know. quick recap of those. Yes. <laughs> so next we're going to talk about what is the harm? What might happen? And as we've talked about earlier, one of the reasons that we did this is that it seems to be a relatively common concern. So Annie has gone to talk to some people about what their concerns might be and what they think about around safe exercise. So this is Louise McGregor, physiotherapist. Which patients do you worry about when you're providing exercise for older patients? So the patients I look very carefully at are those with cardiac conditions, particularly those with aortic stenosis and also those with heart failure and the stability of that. Okay and what are you worried is going to happen if you start getting into exercise? So particularly with critical aortic stenosis um, I would be concerned about working the patient too hard and causing cardiac issues, breathlessness. Lovely. This is Michael, another physiotherapist. Yeah, because of my background in the falls team, I'm always very cautious around blood pressure, when blood pressure is too high or too low, or if there's partial hypertension. <clears throat> also, dizziness is a big factor, um, regardless of the cause. Um, I think mainly we're just concerned about patients falling. It seems to be the main limiting factor with exercise. So I guess the main concern is that uh, by providing exercise for people and getting people exercising are they going to collapse and die because essentially of a cardiac death that's the that's the main risk and that's the main risk that everybody's worrying about but actually 
the the risk of dying when you're exercising um, is approximately one sudden death per 1.5 million episodes of exertion. So, in it's reality, phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, in reality, the risk is is actually very low. And actually, going back to that thing that you saw on Twitter, mm. admitting that we maybe have not validated the Twitter yes. <laughs> thing, mm. but that's actually um, three people's careers worth. Yes, yeah, when you put it into the numbers. intervention. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose for people's real life experience, it might be that they've had a patient collapse in their class. And that's why they're more worried. And then it makes them more worried for everyone else that comes through. Yeah. And then it sort of leads to legacy. But we did have that patient that collapsed. Remember that patient that collapsed and had to yeah. go to A&E? Yes. Yeah. And then that kind of builds that sort of um, fear as well. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess the, the key thing to remember is it's it's not the exercise that kills people in these circumstances. It's the underlying disease. And yes, exercise can be the trigger. Um but actually, do, by doing exercise, doing physical activity, it's reducing your risk of having a cardiovascular event in the longer term. So, yes, there may be a slightly slight increased risk of a cardiac event during that exercise episode. But as, 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 we've, as we've just shown, that risk is actually quite low. Mm. In summary, actually, the long-term risk to health of not exercising or being physically active is actually much higher mm. than the risk of, of that individual activity exercise event and you can try and reduce those the risk of those cardiovascular events by being pretty sensible about the exercise that you're doing and although the evidence is relatively limited you know warming up and cooling down starting at a low exercise intensity and building up over the days and weeks um, you know and initially short bouts of exercise and physical Mm. activity are all sensible strategies that would hopefully reduce the risk of anything more serious happening. And I think talking to your patient whilst they're doing the exercise and explaining to them whilst you're exercising you might get short of breath you might feel hot and sweaty that's okay you know sort of reassuring them but also just keeping that communication so actually if you notice that they're not able to talk to you anymore because they're so out of breath you're probably pushing them a bit too hard too fast and so being able to monitor, monitor that's really important yeah. and then I mean, identifying or letting them know of, of signs and symptoms of when they should stop exercising so if yes. they're getting chest pain if they're getting <laughs> yeah. shortness, shortness of breath that, you know that's excessive um, if they're getting very dizzy very lightheaded then yeah actually they should mm. stop exercising yeah you're probably pushing yourself quite far at that point. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And for a lot of these people, they're not going to have done any sort of um, physical exercise like this for a number of years. So we might need to start a lot slower than maybe an exercise class where we're trying to get them to do an hour's worth of exercise. It might be that they need to spend time one-to-one building up in order to enter the class, mm. which is actually what um, the Dawn Skelton paper about fame kind of talks about, is actually having a pre-class in a way before you actually go into the class to work on that physical fitness. So that's not to say that there aren't some um, relative contraindications to exercise. So um, we're not saying, yeah, by all means, like exercise everybody. Um, but there's some quite clear... Um, the red flags and sort of contraindications yeah, to exercise. Um, that were published in 2009 for Exercise Instructor Training Manual in ACSM. Yeah, so uh, there are some guidelines. And, and actually, a lot of this is is not really based on a lot of evidence it's more on common sense because actually Mm. there aren't many papers out there who are 
exercising patients with new uncontrolled arrhythmias or it's difficult to get ethical approval to yeah. to do a lot of exercise with patients yeah. who've got unstable angina for example yeah. um but it, it's about being sensible and if if the if something's new newly diagnosed and uncontrolled then it's about thinking do is I, this the right thing this, right at this moment exactly yeah. do we need to put it off a little bit um, and so some of those examples are pretty straightforward. So as as John has said, um, and these are all for community settings. And as you said, they don't supersede clinical judgment. They're just sort of guidance for when you might want to stop and think about it um, and, and ask somebody. So new and uncontrolled arrhythmias, so if people are getting palpitations or, you know, losing consciousness. Um, resting or uncontrolled tachycardia, uncontrolled hypertension, and that meaning... Um, over 180 over 100 for example similarly symptomatic hypotension where they're getting lightheaded or dizzy or or fainting or or look like they might faint um, especially at the end of exercise Um, unstable angina unstable heart failure unstable diabetes and if they've got febrile illness Um, so those are fairly common sense things really and Mm. and i think um yeah and and as you said they are guidelines for community session settings but clinical judgment does supersede it so if somebody's resting heart rate is 110 and always has been and has been investigated and everything's stable then i suspect it's Mm. probably safer than to exercise so it's probably around building those communication pathways and links with um wherever you're working either with gps or with geriatricians or whoever it is that you have around you that Mm. can help to support that decision making if you're not sure but without undue delays to people doing the exercise if it's going to be a benefit to them and somebody who knows the patient really well Mm. so often if the physio's only seen the patient a couple of times they won't know the patient's medical history as well as say the gp who won't know that their resting heart rate is always 110 it's absolutely fine yeah so it's okay to kind of go and get that clearance shall we get a little bit nerdier now this is probably time for a nerd alert what we thought it might be useful to do here is to talk through some common medications um and how they can have effect on exercise. Because I think that's something else that quite often comes up is, oh, they're on these medications, is it okay for them to exercise? Or do they need some changes? So the common medications we're going to talk about are ACE inhibitors or ARBs, uh, beta blockers, diuretics, and calcium channel blockers and nitrates, and the more cardiac medications that people are going to be on. So, John, do you want to kick off? Get your nerd glasses on. Yeah, absolutely. I wear glasses anyway, so I don't need to add any glasses. You're not going to swap them over for your actual nerd no, ones? No, no. <laughs> I've okay. left them outside. Um, so I guess the, the first one that's a particularly co- that are particularly common medications are ACE inhibitors and ARBs. Um, and their main mechanism of action that's relevant here is, is reducing peripheral resistance. Um, so essentially you get a pooling or a potential pooling of blood and a risk of postural hypotension when, when you're exercising. There's also a, a, a susceptibility to dehydration because of this effect, but they don't limit exercise capacity and oxygen uptake. Um, it's and the way to get around this is really common sense, just starting with a warm up and gradually building up, um, so that you you don't increase that risk of, of postural hypotension. Mm-hmm. And then beta blockers? Um, so beta blockers are, are slightly more difficult. With ACE inhibitors and ARBs, there isn't usually a problem with patients exercising as long as you're sensible. With beta blockers, um, it, you're obviously 
blocking the cardiac response and output to exercise and blocking the heart rate so so it sort of attenuates patients normal physiological response to exercise and and for a start actually some patients don't particularly like that particularly if they've been active before and then they're suddenly on a beta blocker because they don't like the fact that they can't get the heart rate up um, and it also restricts their exercise capacity and endurance events because you you can't get enough cardiac output because they can't raise their heart rate um, but there are some other th- possible adverse effects as well so sometimes you get some postural hypertension sometimes tiredness which is a recognized side effects effect anyway particularly near the start of of taking beta blockers um, and potentially it, it it masks hypoglycemia in diabetic patients so you do have to be a little bit careful um, but i guess it again it's about common sense and starting starting low and seeing what the response is and also asking the question do they really need to be on beta blockers and actually most of the time they probably do but it's it's about tailoring the exercise program for them and and it doesn't mean that they can't exercise it just means that they um that they won't necessarily get the same the same response Mm. and we don't know longer term um what the health benefits are mm. of people exercising on beta blockers because they can't exercise to the to higher to intensities. To increase your cardiac output, yeah. which is kind of what you're aiming for. So practically, yeah. if you've got a patient on beta blockers and you're doing exercise with them, would they get more breathless more quickly? Um, is that what you? What would? You, how would you see it physically? Yeah. So the, essentially, they just can't. They they just can't they just can't raise their heart rate mm-hmm. um they just they they can't mount that response so they get okay. tired and out of breath very very quickly yeah. okay um and and don't like it okay <laughs> so you might just stop coming to the classes yeah, well, yeah possibly <laughs> so, yeah. so i guess it's something that if people were struggling and having those kind of symptoms mm-hmm. uh, beyond what you would expect for someone who's just tired because they're they haven't done exercise before yeah. like um that that might be, and they're on reasonable doses of beta blockers, it mm-hmm. might be worth saying, could we try reducing to allow them to exercise, I yeah. guess. Some, yeah. Yeah. It's a way that you might look at that. But interestingly, angina patients are usually able to tolerate more exercise without symptoms on beta blockers. So, you know, they, they do have benefits so for certain patients. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So diuretics? Uh, this is probably a bit of an obvious one, really, as in diuretics are getting rid of water, so the, there's a a risk of postural hypotension so it's about making sure that the patient's appropriately hydrated Mm -hmm. but not overloading them (laughs) (laughs) Um, and again we all have different uh, responses to exercise and we all sweat different amounts and we all have different experiences thinking about your insensible losses you know someone's doing quite tight fluid balance and Mm -hmm. you're expecting to lose you know half a liter a day if you're exercising and sweating quite a lot then obviously you you would need to take that into account in your fluid balance yep and and ideally again depending on how tight the fluid balance is and what the symptoms are you'd probably want to try, uh, try and avoid taking them just before exercise and also try and avoid standing for a long period after exercise because mm. otherwise you're just going to get a load of blood pooling when you might be underloaded anyway if that makes sense mm-hmm. and so finally calcium channel blockers and nitrates so things like gtn okay so again they will impair cardiac output and reduce your exercise capacity um but they also uh, you also get peripheral vasodilatation so you do get some cooling postural hypertension especially during the cool down because they've worked and you've got you've got the vasodilatation plus you've got vasodilatation with the exercise um but again the adverse effects of taking them are balanced with the 
drugs ability to improve exercise mm. tolerance so they do they they can improve again particularly uh, angina patients improve exercise tolerance by improving blood flow to the heart so again it's a bit of a balancing act but just having an awareness of what of what some of these drugs do and what you can expect you mm. can have a discussion mm. and you can manage that with the patients yeah, and I think from a physio perspective, this is all like new to me. This is great, like knowing that the effect that the medication would have on their um, ability to exercise. Because often we wouldn't, we'd look at the medications, but we wouldn't know how it affects their exercise. We'd know why they're taking the medication. Yeah. So it's quite good to then be able to have that link to then help clinical reason how how they're going to behave in the cl- how they're going to respond to the exercise in the class, and what you could potentially do about it. Mm. And you talked about. Um, exercise being good in the longer term do you want to talk us through a bit of the physiology of actually what happens and the adaptations that happen this is super nerd alert here i I, I love my physiology (laughs) he has got out his no glasses has everybody turned off though that's (laughs) this is the time to go make a cup of tea if you're not interested look i i I mean there are hundreds of adaptations I, i it's certainly not worth going into into all of them but but essentially what the reason why you're doing exercise and physical activity is to promote adaptations to to help these health benefits if that makes sense so so if you take the type of training that you're doing so cardiorespiratory training or aerobic exercise is is the most common one that everybody is obviously aware of again hundreds of physiological adaptations but some key ones you get increased capillary density in density, you get increased mitochondrial number, size, and function peripherally. And they're the it. bits in the cells that do the oxygen, yep. kind of the machines inside, yep, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely, very, very impressive. So, from from a diabetes perspective, you get an increase in GLUT4 uh, number and translocation. So, GLUT4 transporters on the skeletal muscle cells that transport the the glucose, the sugar into the cells. So, if you've got more of them and they're near the cell membrane, you're more likely to get glucose and blood sugar into your cells rather than floating around the blood mm-hmm. so pretty good <laughs> and he's then, very excited very excited <laughs> and then you're also things like lipoprotein lipase on on capillary endothelium so you, so you get a, a reduction in your um cholesterol bad cholesterol and obviously functionally you increase your cardiorespiratory fitness and your endurance capacity so you can you can exercise or you can do activity for longer. This then exponentially gets better. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and patients feel better if they take part in regular exercise and activity. And we know that from the pulmonary and cardiac rehabilitation classes. Mm. They benefit from it if they engage mm. in it and, and take part in it. Yeah, but not just the physical benefits of it. There's also kind of the social aspects um, and the kind of um, reducing social isolation and increasing feelings of well-being. So it's not just the cardiorespiratory and the mus- you know, musculoskeletal benefits, but actually that overall well-being improves as well, which is really important. And that really links into the um, cycle of frailty that you see, isn't it, is that people start to um, be less able to walk. Um, they then start to restrict their, their world. They mm-hmm. don't go out so much. They become socially isolated. Yep. Yep. They don't do so much physical activity, and then they have the capability for less, and then their world gets smaller yep. and smaller. Yeah. And more isolated. And, and I think as relatives, and to a certain degree, health professionals, we encourage that. M- probably more as relatives. I talk 
myself I, I say that as a relative myself because if somebody is old and frail and is doing less and has been unwell actually you want to come in and you say I'll do that you for you you want to look after yeah. them you want to look after yeah. them don't go out because if you go outside you might fall so yeah. just stay at home <laughs> yeah. I hear that so often and you think no why does your daughter tell you that yes, exactly. <laughs> and you become sedentary and you get you lose all those adaptations that you've had and you yeah you become as you say you get into that cycle of frailty mm-hmm. even more quickly even though the relative is is very well meaning and oh, trying course, to yeah. be very yeah. helpful and yeah. caring and the same thing happens in hospital quite often as well mm-hmm. doesn't it yeah. that um yeah. um we're trying to keep people safe we're scared of people falling over and, and injuring themselves and um it can be too protective and that's where all of the NPJ paralysis and keep people active in hospitals yes. and that kind of thing has really gained momentum is recognizing that that it's not a positive thing to to keep people in bed or yeah. in the chair yeah yeah and the active hospitals and moving medicine stuff yeah. and lots of there's a lot and motivated move there's lots of great resources out there that 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 uh, that can be helpful the other thing that's uh, i won't mention too much physiology but i think the key one actually to mention with elderly patients is about resistance training and about strength training because uh, actually it's often forgotten how important that is in terms of falls prevention and actually what you get when you do strength training is you get a massive improvement in strength really pretty impressive you know 25 to 100 percent in the first few months um and that's more down to um recruiting more muscle units and improved coordination of recruitment but also some muscle growth some hypertrophy but there's always a concern when you mention strengthening mm-hmm. elderly ladies say well am i going to turn into a bodybuilder and actually the reality is no <laughs> they try good. really hard well yeah i know there are some there are some examples there are some examples of some some women in their 60s 70s 80s who are bodybuilders but that does take an awful lot of effort an awful lot of strength training and actually no it's unlikely to happen just by doing your standard strength training that the physios uh, uh Um, recommending and prescribing so we've seen that there are lots of positive benefits of exercise and and thanks to john we can describe in detail cellular level what some of those are which is really great um we can see that there's actually a very low risk of cardiac death associated with exercise and a lot of negative effects that can be associated with not exercising so we all need to be encouraging older adults to exercise as as azani was saying in that tweet like every encounter counts and thinking about how we might do this on a day-to-day basis, so um, maybe referring to physiotherapy, um, but also thinking about your local system and how does that work? What do you need to adapt within your local system to be able to provide this? Should you be getting some more exercise specialists involved? Do you need to have some medical input to the physio um, teams that you have? Um, or what does that model look like? What are those connections and pathways so that we can get as many people exercising as possible? Yeah, so Joe, you mentioned about commissioning and commissioning services, and I think that going forward, there's a massive role for uh, sport and exercise medicine consultants as a specialty here about getting people more active and and doing it safely, because we're talking about patients with multiple comorbidities, with complex conditions, complex drug interactions, and we want to get them active and exercising safely and having some expert knowledge to know whether and how to do that safely Mm. I think Mm. can be really useful for those patients and again it's about commissioning a service that has input 
from, and it doesn't have to be a massive input, but some input from using uh, that expertise if it's around. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Sport and exercise medicine um, as a specialty, which is evolving and, and growing massively, mm-hmm. and this is what they're all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that partnership with the physiotherapists and the exercise instructors that they know how to deliver exercises specifically for people, older people and specifically at Falls, can work really well to have that sort of integration and that expert knowledge from all the different parties to make sure patients are able to exercise safely. And at the end of the day, you can't expect GPs and physios to have that expert knowledge of exercise uh, with all of these conditions. It's it's just not part of their remit. Mm -hmm. It's like every other specialty. It's a specialty for a reason. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So that's it for us for today. You will be able to find the show notes on the website. Um, Let us know what you think on Twitter at MDT underscore podcast, facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. Just a reminder that there's a CPD log on the website as well. So if you want to use that for your um, reflective log um, and there are links to the infographics and all that kind of stuff there, you know the drill by now. The MDT Podcast. So, before we go though, we're going to do our new MDT teaser, which is going to be on safe exercise. Um, I've briefed the guys here about what it involves. We have one minute, no hesitation, deviation, or repetition. I feel nervous. When you said you briefed us, you mean you told us... <laughs> you told us it, what to do. <laughs> imme- well, you briefed us immediately before we started, so we had no time no to No time prepare. to prep. Come on, That's guys. That's the idea, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so who's going to go first? John's going to go first. <laughs> Ali's being assertive. And I won't mess. So, John. I'm not going to mess either. Go. Sorry, what's the topic? Oh, John. Say <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for saying oh, the sorry. whole thing we've been talking about. Oh, no, 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 no. Sorry, 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 sorry. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I, I, usually you get the to- and the topic is, but no. Okay. And the topic I'm, is no, no, no. safe exercise. Go. Hesitation. <laughs> <laughs> that means I've got to go. <laughs> no, I buzzed, so it's me. Oh, yeah. great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So safe exercise is quite a broad topic and spans lots of different ideas around what physical activity is and what benefits can come from enhancing that into repetitive movements and activities which allow you to increase your health benefits over a longer period of time. Repetition. What was that? Benefits. Benefits. Damn it. Okay, cool. Go. So we've talked today about massive benefits of physical activity and exercise. And I think it's really important that we encourage everybody to do safe exercise. Exercise. It's part of the the, um, title. Oh, yeah. Good point. Good point. Good point. Stand corrected. (laughs) I might have got that wrong before. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yes, you're allowed the title again. Yeah. Sorry. Go. But it's about encouraging people to be able to do this safely. So there are some contraindications and some red flags that people should be aware of when they are doing exercise with people and making sure... No, I'm sorry. You can't say exercise again. Sorry. Hang on. You stop the timer before you get... Okay, you can say safe exercise is a topic. You can't just keep saying the word exercise again. Yeah, you've, you've... 
you've come in with three seconds to go and my finger is ho- hovered over the bell. I'm limbering <laughs> I'm up. Quite okay. competitive. I'm rubbish at this. I haven't spoken at all. Well, quick, press the bell in the next, okay, next three, three seconds. seconds. I'm just going to shout exercise yeah. so that you can hear me. Um, okay. You don't, I don't know you've got time oh, yeah, to prepare. So, there are many Hesitation. things. <laughs> I think you two are just much more competitive than I am, which is surprising because I'm a physio in the room. <laughs> very true, very true. However, we are at a minute and I don't, I'm confused now. So I'm pretty I don't sure I pressed the bell before you stop the clock. Or at you. No, I, um, we'll call it a draw. <laughs> I think we can all agree we're all winners here. <laughs> she says (laughs) um okay great so thank you so much for joining me in the studio today it's been a really great episode um i think you'll all agree um let us know what you think and the mdt will reconvene in two weeks time dr wilkinson has previously received funding from astellas and ucb pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities the mdt podcast is a hearing aid podcasts big things media production additional music by kevin mcleod this podcast has been made possible from a technology enhanced learning grant from health education england spreading education throughout kent surrey and sussex for more information visit the hearing aid podcasts.org.uk